This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Dana Nezel, Democratic nominee for Michigan Attorney General. Thanks for coming on, Dana, and congrats on winning the primary. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be on. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. So, Dana, under Barack Obama, we saw state attorney generals take an unprecedented role in opposing the executive, and we've seen that continue under Donald Trump. Now, of course, with Democratic attorney generals opposing a Republican administration. What do you see as the role of your state's attorney general under the Trump administration? And how would you wield the powers of the office to fight the Trump agenda? Well, unfortunately, I mean, the state AGs are the last line of defense against the trespasses of the Trump administration. And this is true in so many different ways. Um, Every new day, uh, I see sort of a new horror that comes out of Washington, D.C., that frankly, the state AGs are in the best possible position to push back uh, and to sue the federal government and to make certain that some of the worst policies that are being promulgated by government agencies, government agencies, uh, you know, under the Trump administration put into effect. And I have about 100 examples of that if you have time for it. But um, it, it makes... This office, the, uh, these offices all around the country, really more important than they've ever been historically in the history of our country. So I'd love to hear some of those examples. Can you give us a few? Yeah, absolutely. Um, firstly, uh, the AGs were involved in the lawsuits involving the separation of children from their parents uh, at the border. And they were instrumental in working with the ACLU and, and making certain that you had federal courts order uh, the Trump administration to um, stop that procedure and to reunite families. I mean, if they could find the children, right? Um, so that's an example. Just recently, a number of states uh, have filed suit because of the efforts of the Trump administration to... Um, roll back the fuel economy standards that were put in place to combat climate change. Uh, you have another case just in the last few weeks where you have gun manufacturers that were going to be able to uh, allow a product where you could basically download, use a 3D printer to download a plastic firearm, um, which violates all kinds of, of state laws here in Michigan, for sure. Um, that has been put on hold because of suits by the AG. And of all the most egregious lawsuits um, that have had to be filed because of things that the Trump administration is doing, the effort by the Trump administration to roll back protections under the ACA involving um, people with pre-existing conditions and how the ACA protects those folks and so that insurance companies cannot discriminate against them. The Trump administration wants to eradicate that and the Democratic AGs are fighting back, and I want to be part of those lawsuits so that I can secure 
justice, not just on behalf of the 10 million residents of the state of Michigan, but on behalf of all Americans. So regarding the separation of migrant families at the border, we have seen under not only Trump, but also the previous two presidents, an unprecedented attack on the undocumented community with more deportations in the past two administrations than under all other presidencies combined. Now, for at least the next two years, we will see this assault continue and likely continue to escalate. But we have seen states take action against this assault, take action against ICE. For example, ending data sharing. What measures would you take as attorney general to help protect the undocumented community in your state? Right. So, Jordan, you know, I'm, I, I was a longtime um, assistant prosecutor in, um, in Detroit, in Wayne County, and prosecuted a multitude of cases there. I also have done a lot of work as a criminal defense attorney representing indigent defendants, you know, people who are too poor to be able to afford an attorney. And I am really wary of the constant attacks against immigrant communities and this this uh, very flagrant lie that's being told by Republicans that somehow uh, immigrant communities are responsible for all our public safety issues. It's not true. I can tell you that for a fact. And I know that in Detroit, you know, where I have practiced for so long, um, I have handled so many homicide cases. I can't think of one that involved uh, an undocumented person, person having perpetrated that crime, but I sure have had a lot of cases where the victims were undocumented people. Uh, so I really push back on that notion of it being a public safety issue, at least in, here in Michigan, that has not been my experience. Um, but that being the case, I feel like my role as uh, attorney general is to make certain that the state laws are enforced, right? And um, that involves making certain that people who are not compliant with the state laws that I, I in my capacity as, as, as state AG and working with um, law enforcement around the state, that we make certain that those people are held accountable uh, for their actions. But that does not include people who may have uh, violations of immigration law, but are totally compliant with state laws. And to me, it is not the business of the state government. It is not within the realm of the county sheriffs or the local uh, you know, municipal uh, police departments that have to govern um, federal immigration laws where you have people who haven't committed any other crimes, but they've overstayed a visa or something of that nature. That's not their job to participate in rounding people up and detaining them and prosecuting them and whatnot. You know? And so my view is that is a waste of our jail space and it's a waste of our resources when there are people that are not out there committing crimes against the community. So, you know, my intent is to ensure that we actually protect the public and that we make certain that our money is being spent wisely. Um, and that does not include, you know, using those resources to detain people uh, who have not committed crimes. That, that's just the way I see it. And I just, uh, if I have to hear one more Republican in this state talk about um, we're not doing enough to go after uh, undocumented people, uh, while at the same time we frankly have um, a big issue in this state now because we have, uh, you know, so many areas where we don't have enough workers because we relied on people that came in from, you know, say Central America to come up and to assist us in, you know, picking our delicious uh, cherries and apples and 
many other types of work that um, we don't have enough workers in the state for. So if anything, I think a lot of these folks were contributing to our communities. Um, and this, um, this safety issue, it's a red herring. It's a, just a typical um, effort by the Republicans to scapegoat a community of people that don't have the means to fight back. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout Shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. You mentioned that you have represented people too poor for an attorney, which I think speaks to the symptoms of what criminal justice experts call the criminalization of poverty. Have you witnessed this manifest in your career? And do you have any proposals to decriminalize poverty as attorney general? Well, I, don't, I almost don't even know where to start with that because I have seen it on so, so such a broad scale and it, it just, it's such a travesty to me. One of the things that I think is a particular issue in Michigan um, maybe even worse than we have in other states, is that Michigan has the highest rates of auto insurance any place in the country. And the insurance industry has been very influential in terms of um, providing contributions to uh, Republicans in our state legislature. And as such, we have some really aggressive criminal laws as it involves people driving without insurance, um, driving on a suspended license because they don't have insurance, things of that nature. So what I see routinely is that people, even if they can afford a car, they can't afford the auto insurance that allows them to drive. And if you drive without auto insurance, it's a one-year misdemeanor in our state. So you literally are criminalizing being poor because we have such, you know, such few resources in the way of public transportation in any city here in the state of Michigan that people have no other means to get to their job or to pick up their kids at school or even to get to the doctor if they need to, you know, go to the hospital. And so you have people who end up driving illegally because they can't afford the car insurance. And as a result, they become, if they get caught, they become a criminal. And now they're trapped in the criminal justice system. And what that means is not only do they end up with criminal convictions, uh, which by the way, uh, in the state of Michigan, you can never have anything under the motor vehicle code expunged. So those those convictions will stay with you your entire life. There's literally nothing you can do about it under the current system. 
and now it affects the rest of your life. You can't get a job. Um, you're not eligible for certain educational programs. Sometimes you can't get housing because certain uh, apartments won't um, rent an apartment to you because you have this criminal history. And it just, it's so tragic to me on so many different levels. Firstly, I want to have an auto insurance fraud unit that roots out fraud in the system and if need be goes after the insurance companies for their very high rates um, so that we can lower the rates of auto insurance to make certain that more people are actually able to afford auto insurance. But I also want to revamp the uh, expungement code um, to ensure that people who do have convictions under the Motor Vehicle Code can that get them expunged just like you can almost any other kind of conviction. Um, and I want to broaden the expungement statute to allow for other things as well, such as the fact that in November, we're going to have something uh, called Proposal 1, which involves the legalization of recreational marijuana, which I support. And I want to see people who have uh, convictions for crimes that as of November will become legal acts. I want it to be easy for those people to remove marijuana-related convictions from their record. So, for instance, I, I want to work with the legislature to uh, allow for expungements of those crimes and to do so in a very uncomplicated and easy manner where they're automatically removed from a person's, from the, the lien, the law enforcement information network. Um, you know, but I also want to have a division at the office of AG where we actually work with people who are, you know, too poor to be able to afford attorney and assist people in obtaining expungements so that they don't have these criminal convictions that they're walking around with the rest of li their lives that affect every element, every aspect of a person's life. So that is something that when you talk about criminalizing the poor, that we can do much better and we can change that. Um, but there's a lot of other things. I want to be involved in really aggressive bail bond reform uh, to make certain that we are not keep keeping people locked up for very minor offenses in a way that ends up affecting them, honestly, for the rest of their lives. Um, because they spent some time in jail unnecessarily. Um, and there are, there's a variety of other things that we can be doing uh, involving specialty diversion courts, for instance, so that people who badly need treatment, you know, because they have a mental illness, they have a drug or alcohol conviction, maybe they're a veteran who is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, that they can be diverted away from the criminal justice system and into treatment programs. And when you do that, people, you know, have a much better um, outcome later. They have a much better chance uh, of going on to becoming a contributing member of our society because they don't have a criminal history and they receive the treatment that they needed. Plus, the state and those counties save a ton of money because it's so much less expensive to treat people than it is to incarcerate them. So that's a handful uh, of just some of the many ways that I think the AG can be active in ensuring that people are given better opportunities instead of seeing the inside of a jail cell. And would you support eliminating cash bail? Yeah, I was, so what I support is a, a system that we put into place that uh, a, there's a number of different factors that they consider in terms of, first of all, a person's capious history. The only things you should be looking at are this, capious history, and by capious I mean what the chances are that the person is going to reappear uh, for court. And number two, the safety of the community. Obviously, you have to look at somebody who's charged with, say, a number uh, of, of rape cases um, differently than you would someone who's accused 
of a, a minor theft, right? I mean, I think everybody agrees on that. And so you would look at those two factors and then you would use a variety of other factors to make a determination as to what the proper amount of bond is. Um, I don't know that I necessarily subscribe to eliminating it completely, but I think we have to use a completely different system so that we don't end up where very wealthy people can bond out, um, even if they're accused of murder, even if they're accused of the most serious crimes you can imagine, where people end up staying in, in jail for not very serious crimes, just, just because they are, are too poor to be able to afford uh, even a minimal bond. Um, we, that's a violation of, uh, of the 14th Amendment, in my opinion, uh, and I, I think we need to do something significant to change that. And I know that they are experimenting that with, with that in other states. I want to do the same in Michigan. And you mentioned marijuana decriminalization. How do you hope to end the war on drugs in your state? Well, so, you know, again, I, I'm the only candidate who's ever run for the position of uh, attorney general uh, to sort of be a, a forceful voice uh, in support of uh, the legalization of recreational marijuana. And I also supported uh, the legalization of medical marijuana as well. So I think that in itself is going to be very helpful because we know that um, marijuana-related um, enforcement of, of those types of laws, they, they absolutely disproportionately discriminate against communities of color. And in, in some counties here in Michigan, you have a five times higher chance of going to jail for a marijuana-related crime if you are a person of color than if you were Caucasian. So the disparity is, is absolutely incredible. But I think once we have legalization, and again, I think we're polling somewhere in the 60s on that ballot proposal, and if we have a decent turnout, which I expect we will because our primaries, we had a 40-year high, um, I do expect it to pass. And so I think that right away you're going to see a lot more equity in the system once we have that, um, you know, that legislation in place. But, you know, in addition to that, as I mentioned before, we need to work on expunging the records for people who have previous convictions for something now that is completely legal. And uh, I need to do my best working with um, police departments and county sheriffs all across the state so that they understand that we can't be treating marijuana-related cases any differently than we treat alcohol. And uh, I think it's going to result, frankly, in a big boom to us uh, here in Michigan, to our state treasury, in terms of our ability to pave the roads and pay for public schools, because that is where those ta tax dollars on now legal recreational marijuana will go. And I think that will be very helpful. And plus, we'll be spending a lot less money incarcerating people for marijuana-related crimes. So I think it's sort of a win-win from that perspective. Of course, as Attorney General, I want to make certain that you don't have people selling to minors. I want to make certain that people are not driving uh, under the influence. But with the exception of those things, uh, I think that marijuana needs to be regulated like any other business. Um, and, you know, people need to be compliant in terms of their... Uh, you know, manufacturing and transporting and distributing marijuana, just as they do with um, with alcohol. Uh, but I think it's time for us to move on from this. I think one of the things that's important, though, and that I have vowed, is that this will remain, of course, illegal uh, and a Schedule One drug under federal law. Now, as state AG, I can advocate for the descheduling of marijuana, 
but I don't get a vote. You know, I'm not going to be in Congress. Um, and uh, even if Congress was able to pass that, they would likely need it to be signed uh, by the president, of course. And that's an issue. So as, as long as you have people like Jeff Sessions that com regularly compare marijuana with heroin, which are both Schedule One drugs, um, all I can say is if Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice wants to come into the state of Michigan after we have legalization, he can be assured of this. I am not going to cooperate with federal authorities in putting people in prison uh, for activities that are 100% legal under Michigan law. I won't do it. And would you support taking measures to decriminalize drug addiction? Now, marijuana is not an addictive drug, but in terms of the war on drugs, we have seen an unsuccessful and pretty useless attempt to criminalize drug addiction and throw people in jail for what is a mental health and public health problem. Well, I certainly think that the first go-to move when you have people who are addicts uh, has to absolutely be drug treatment instead of incarceration. Now, when you have people who are out committing other kinds of crimes, especially if they are violent crimes, uh, who, you know, happen to be addicts, um, you know, we have to protect society, right? We can't allow people to be subjected to violent crimes from people uh, who are addicted. I mean, it, it's just very important that we protect people. But, you know, again, we have to have these intensive treatment programs because we, you know, the way that we prevent a lot of that stuff from happening in the first place is making certain that we have treatment available, that we have the best treatment available. Uh, and whether that means for people who have committed more serious crimes within the Michigan Department of Corrections and our county jails, that we have excellent treatment available. Um, and, you know, for everybody else, I mean, we need to have um, those opportunities. I have to say, I am not a person, I've seen too much of what uh, drugs like uh, heroin and crystal methamphetamine and cocaine can do to a person. I'm not one of those people who thinks we just legalize all drugs. I certainly advocate, I do not, do not put marijuana in that category at all. In fact, I, I really think if you're going to use a drug that um, in, in many ways alcohol is, is more dangerous than, than marijuana, and um, that's after many, many years of prosecuting and defending those cases. But I, I am not a person that believes that we just legalize all drugs. Uh, I do, however, want to make certain that we have treatment available for the people who need it. And especially when you have crimes that are just possession crimes. They're not possession with intent to distribute. They're not manufacturing uh, heroin or cocaine or crystal meth or any of those other drugs that, you know, we should not be locking people up for mere possession offenses. Those people should always be going to treatment programs. And all of this really plays into mass incarceration. Now, Michigan's incarceration rate is higher than any country on Earth besides the United States at large. What other measures can the Attorney General take to fight mass incarceration, given that fighting mass incarceration will ultimately have to deal with addressing violent crimes as well as nonviolent offenses? Right. Well, you know, there's a lot of things that I, I think can be done. And I think, you know, you start off again with prioritizing so that you have programs in place in the Michigan Department of Corrections and for people who are parolees and probationers um, so that there's you can lower the, the recidivism rate. You know, you have to have not just the treatment programs, uh, but also you have to have job training programs. You have to have better educational programs as uh, the educational opportunities for Michiganders has 
declined thanks to Betsy DeVos and uh, the, you know, the proliferation of charter schools, for-profit charter schools, which I think has ruined public education in our state. Um, then you see the increase in people who are locked up. Of course, you know, you have those same people who are advocating for private charter schools, um, you know, being funded by the state, advocating for privatized prisons, right? Because it's all about, you know, how you can make a profit off of these communities instead of actually helping them. Uh, but that being the case, you know, I think you have to have these programs in place so that when a person is exiting uh, the criminal justice system, they have easy access to these programs so that they can actually get job training so that they can then get a job. And I guess, again, that turn, that that also involves this issue with people who have criminal convictions not being able to get jobs. And we have to work harder, I think, not just, again, on expungements, but in having um, programs available that people who are former inmates, people who have criminal convictions, can still get this job training, can still get employment, um, and not, you know, have a situation where for the rest of their lives they're una unable to find employment because when you have that happen, of course you're going to have a high re uh, recidivism rate. You're going to have a higher chance that they're going to re-enter the, the, uh, the system because they don't have any other options available. Um, but there are other things that have really bothered me, frankly, that our state attorney general, Bill Schuette, who's now running for governor, has done. You know, he spent um, years and years fighting against the, um, the new juvenile lifer rulings that were put into place uh, by the United States Supreme Court. He spent millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I think one of the things you have to do is when you have some of these folks that have committed crimes uh, when they were very young. And now it's 35, 40, 50 years later, um, have the ability to get these people in front of a, um, a parole board. Because I see cases where some of these folks have gone literally decades and decades without any disciplinary problems in prison. And we're holding on to these 75, 80, 85 year olds that committed a crime, you know, maybe 60 years earlier and are no longer a threat to society, and we're paying so much money to incarcerate them um, when they are not a threat to society anymore. And I think that's something that we definitely need to, to look at and you know, make certain that we're not keeping people in prison who no longer really need to be there and who have served their debt uh, to society. But you know, the education system, which is not something necessarily that the AG always can do a lot about, but there, there are certain things that the AG can do. The AG can root out corruption in our for-profit charter school system. We have a ton of corruption here in Michigan because of the DeVos family. We can make certain that we don't have money illegally and unconstitutionally diverted from our public school system to private, sometimes religious schools. Uh, that affects our public school system. Um, and even in the city of Detroit right now, you know, there's a lawsuit still up on appeal where we had the emergency manager take over the Detroit public school system uh, and then do a terrible, terrible job of educating the children. And when the children brought suit and said to the state, hey, you're not teaching us how to read. We don't have the textbooks we need. We don't have the teachers. We're, you're just warehousing us in these terrible buildings that have rats in one corner and black mold in the, in the other corner. And you're not teaching us anything. And our AG, our Attorney General Bill Schuette, took that case and he responded to it by saying, the state is not required to teach public school children 
how to read. That was his argument. And, you know, to me, you're not doing anybody any favors by saying, we're not educating you and we don't have to. Because what's going to end up happening to those children later on? It's the straight, you know, school to prison pipeline, right? And we need to do a better job when people are young. And that, by the way, includes enforcing environmental codes. Because when you end up with these huge populations of children in Detroit and in Flint who have lead poisoning, what is going to be the outcome for those kids later? Where are they going to end up? You do a better job enforcing environmental laws when these kids are young to make certain that they're not literally being poisoned in their own communities. You have a much better chance that these kids are going to be able to learn the kinds of skills that they're going to need later on in order to become contributing members uh, of our society. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout Shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So Dana, we are recording on August 21st, though our listeners will be tuning in at a later date. And today marks the beginning of the national prison strike. Though we do not have time to cover all of the 10 demands, I'd like to discuss a few of them with you. Number two is, quote, an immediate end to prison slavery. All persons imprisoned in any place of detention under United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. Is this something you would agree with? You know what? I, I would need to know a little bit more about it. I'm going to be honest with you. I am not pr- familiar with that provision. Of course, I know the types of tasks that inmates um, often are you know, forced to engage in. Um, but I can't say that I have enough information on that to have formed an opinion on it. Number 10, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called ex-felons must be counted, representation is demanded, all voices count. I 100% agree with that. I believe that regardless of your status, whether you have been, you know, in Michigan, fortunately, even if you have been convicted uh, of a felony, uh, you're still entitled to be able to vote. You may have to re-register once you're out of prison, but you are entitled to vote. So we don't have that issue here. But I, I absolutely believe for people who are detained and who have never been convicted of a crime, what is the justification for not allowing those folks to vote? Um, and even if you are in uh, prison, you may have been deprived of your liberty, uh, obviously to a, to a large extent because of that, but you should not be deprived of your opportunity to participate in this system. And uh, I think that everyone should be able to vote in this country if you're a citizen of the United States. 
So Dana, you went viral many months ago for a video making clear that as Attorney General, you would hold sexual abusers, those in power, accountable for their abuse. Now, of course, there are lawsuits you could bring forward against the many legislators we've seen outed as sexual abusers. But something I'm more curious about is how you in that office could work to dismantle rape culture at large. Right. Well, one of the problems that you might be aware of that we've had in Michigan uh, and, and has frankly been a problem in other states are the way that um, law enforcement in general treats um, sexual abuse. And that's why we had the stockpiling of over 11,000 untested rape kits in the city of Detroit. You literally had um, police departments, whole police departments that just didn't care uh, about criminal sexual conduct cases. They didn't treat them the way they did all other cases. And obviously that needs to change and it needs to change very quickly. And we need to have people in these offices that take these types of crimes very seriously. Uh, and I was a long time, you know, sex crime prosecutor uh, in the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. And certainly I know how devastating these types of crimes can be to people. Um, and we certainly here in Michigan, uh, I don't know that there's any place in the country people haven't heard about uh, Dr. Larry Nasser and what occurred at Michigan State University. And that's an investigation that I will inherit as Attorney General. And I absolutely think that people who fail to properly report um, claims of sex abuse that are perpetrated by people that work for state agencies, work for government agencies, work for universities, those people need to be held criminally accountable. Um, you cannot know that you have someone on staff at your university uh, who is alleged to have been engaged in criminal sexual conduct and not pass that on to the authorities. It's not right. And we need to have a system in place also where these crimes are taken so seriously that victims uh, aren't reticent to report these crimes. And that's a big part of it, by the way, is you, know, you saw the number of, of, of women that came forward to report on Larry Nasser, some of their crimes that occurred, you know, years and years, even decades earlier, but they were afraid to tell anyone, or they knew that if they did report it, nothing would happen. Um, or, or even worse, they would be shunned uh, and treated poorly as, as a result of coming forward. And we need to change that. We need to make certain that when women come forward and they report these types of offenses, that um, their claims are taken very seriously. And lastly, what can folks do to get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online? Well, uh, my website is uh, Dana2018.com and there's all kinds of ways in which people can help my candidacy if they're interested in doing that. Um, you know, firstly, we have a volunteer tab on there and we are looking for volunteers all over the state for all kinds of things. You know, um, whether it's working events, whether it's phone banking, whether it's knocking doors, you know, we need to create sort of a figurative, literal, I guess, army of volunteers to get out around the state to talk about what the Office of Attorney General can do to help people's everyday lives and to really support my candidacy. Um, so we can use all the help we can get with that. Um, you know, conversely, obviously, we can always use financial help. You know, I'm in a situation where I vowed not to take any corporate money. And um, the reason for that is because I think the Attorney General needs to be the person who will hold corporations responsible when they violate the law. 
but as a result, you know, obviously that's a lot of money that my opponent, my Republican opponent is going to be getting that I won't be. And while I don't need to outspend the Republicans, uh, I, I can't get outspent three to one by them or four to one either. So even small contributions, you know, they make a difference. Those $20 contributions where instead of going out to dinner that night, maybe you make a donation to a candidate um, who you really believe in and really wants to do right by the residents of our state, um, you know, and who can make a real difference on behalf of people all around the country, quite frankly, since AGs are in this unique position to be able to sue the federal government on behalf uh, of really all 50 states and affect policy in that way. You know, I would encourage people to contribute whatever they can, even if it's a small amount, it really does make a difference. Absolutely. And thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. I've been following your candidacy for many months now, and it was great to speak with you. Thanks, Jordan. I really appreciate you having me. Of course. And we'd love to have you on again after you're elected. Fantastic. I That is a promise. Awesome. So to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our website, millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.